The reading for today is Judges 6, verses 7 through 14. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Redemption Church Arcadia. How we doing? Well, you guys are like way more responsive than my church. This is beautiful. My name is Vince. I'm the lead pastor up at Redemption Flagstaff. It's really good to be with you. I went ahead and, uh, and brought a photo, the obligatory guest speaker photo of the family. That's my family there. Yeah, she's pretty, right? Um, on my uh, right there, obviously, is my wife, Verity. And on the left is my boy, Finley. And don't be confused, he is a human. And uh, this was, uh, you'd like to say this was for Halloween. It wasn't. He just loves that thing, okay? <laughs> and so, uh, anyway, that's them. They couldn't make it down here with me today, so I'm just riding solo. Uh, but I love them. If she ever listens to this podcast, she probably won't. Um, I love you, babe. All right. Um, Last time, actually, I was in this place on this stage was back in 2010. So I was on staff with Praxis Church, which was one of the original founding churches of redemption. So in 2010, I came and preached on this stage for the very first time as an intern with Praxis. And so we have, uh, myself, my wife, we have a huge love for Redemption Arcadia. In fact, we both got married here uh, in 2010. 2011, I think, 2010, that was 2010 too, we got married on this stage, and so this place is pretty near and dear to my wife and I, and so to know you guys are moving here in a few short months is, is hard for us also, and I know you guys are going through that transition, but I want you to know we love you, we've been praying for this church for many, many years, and I'm excited to be here today, okay? Last couple things before we'll jump into the Word of God this morning is we have a couple traditions up in Flagstaff that I thought would be fun to bring to you guys today, and uh, my guess is that you'll never do them again. Again, but you're going to do them today, and that's just part of it, okay? Um, we have a tradition where we have you turn back to the people that you just greeted and make you greet them again, okay? So we take the most awkward part of church and make you do it twice, okay? <laughs> There's a caveat to it, though, okay? Because instead of turning around and saying your name to the person or asking for their name, you instead have to tell that person their name. So if you already forgot... You need to repent, okay? And this is the perfect place for it, amen? Okay? So go ahead and do that now and see if you get it right.
All right, all right, good, good. All right, all right, just a name, enough, okay? What are you doing? I gotta ask, just by a show of hands, how many people got everyone's name correct that they met? Exactly, okay? There's two of two people. So we started this tradition very early on. We planted Redemption Flagstaff about three years ago. We started this tradition off day one with the desire to say, listen, when you meet someone, let's actually tune our ears in to what they're saying, right? Which is something that in our culture, we don't do. And so let's be countercultural in that and care enough to learn people's names. And the reality is, you'll probably sit next to these people again sometime in the next six months. And instead of having to learn their name again, you'll know it the first time. Okay, so again, I don't know if you'll ever do that again, but if you don't, you should. Okay, um, the next thing that we do, oh, and just so you know that I play along I met three people today, uh, Jillian, Donna, and Darian. They're all sitting in the back. So just so you know that I, I play this game also, and, uh, and I'll try and not forget if I ever come back. Okay, second thing that we do in Flagstaff every week is we pray for another congregation in Flagstaff, another local church, because we believe that we are called to go plant that church to be part of the gospel answer for the city of Flagstaff, but not the whole thing, okay? Um, this Today, though, I don't know any other churches in Arcadia, so I'm just going to pray for you guys and just ask that God would bless us. I know it's been a bit of a transition for Redemption Arcadia over the last year, year and a half. You sent uh, Sean, the worship guy, to Reality LA. Um, you sent Sean to Peoria, and then you sent Sean to Scottsdale. <laughs> Are there any Seans left here? Anyone? Not for long, okay? You're probably out of here and you don't even realize it. Okay? And then you've got a big transition coming up where you're moving into the new space, I think, sometime this summer. I'm here in random dates, but I want to pray for Arcadia, uh, your vision, your work in the city. Pray for Pastor Frank up in Flagstaff right now as he brings the word of God to, to our people up there too. So let's bow our heads and let's ask God to move. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we are we're so in need of more of you. God, we cannot change ourselves. We cannot all of a sudden just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, get rid of the sin and the idols of our life, and then move forward in your mission without your transformative work. And so, God, we lay ourselves down. I pray, God, that you would move our hearts by the power of your Spirit in us to be humble and attentive to your moving. God, would you bless this congregation? God, thank you for this building and the many great years that we've spent here. God, the ministry that has been accomplished here. God, the men and women who were saved here, the children that were taught here. God, and that will continue to happen in this group of people. God, we pray your blessing, your strength, your wisdom, and your glory to reign in their lives. God, bless Pastor Frank this morning as he preaches your word. Thank you for his leadership and his heart. Thank you for Cody. Thank you for the whole staff here and the way that they lead. I pray, God, your blessing upon them in a way that continues the mission of God in Arcadia. Lord, move in us today. Shape us today. Holy Spirit, we learn nothing today if you don't teach us. 
And so, God, would you go before us? In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Okay, Judges chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, I just want to point this out. They have Bibles for you guys. If you don't own one, on the way out, grab one. They're free. You can grab as many as you'd like. If you want mine and you don't have one, you can have it. Okay, like get into the Word of God. Follow along with us. Turn to Judges 6. And as you're turning, one last thing by way of intro. I enjoy a good amen. Now, I don't know how often you guys do that for Frank. Here, judging by the way you guys were singing, like kind of like this, my guess there's not a lot of amening going on here, um, but I'm going to encourage you to do it. Like if I want to know, especially in a new place, are we tracking, are we there, is God speaking, is God teaching? And so if you hear something, that's good. Hey, let's go. Let's get an amen going. Now, on the other end, if you hear something you don't like or you disagree with, just be quiet, okay? <laughs> okay? Talk to David Massey after and he'll take care of that, Okay? Let me give us, as best I can, um, a 35,000-foot flyover view of where we're at today. Um, the, the book of Judges is very much contextual, so it builds on itself as it gets all the way to the end of the text. And so I want to take us back to Joshua. So I'm, this is going to be very quick, just a quick historical thing. So Joshua is the new leader after Moses that is to bring the people of God into the land of Canaan, the promised land. God says, go, and I want you to subdue the land, drive out the locals. This will be your land. Do not leave one there to, to come up against you. Okay, go and defeat everyone. Make this your land. While Joshua is alive, this goes pretty well. Okay, while Joshua, the raised leader of God, is alive, this goes well. But then, like all of us, he dies. And after him comes no leader to take up the mantle of leadership to lead the people of God. And they begin to lose battle. After battle, they begin to shrink back in fear, not believing God had promised them this land. And they begin to go about their own way. It says that every gener the entire generation that remembered the work in the hand of God had died away. And now they were left with a people who did not know the Lord. This leads them into this continuous, terrible spiral and cycle which leads to their destruction over and over and over again with God always having to come in and be the hero. The overarching theme of our entire book I think we find in one verse in Judges 17.6 and that verse says this, In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I'm going to read it one more time. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the three themes, again, as we look at a flyover view, the first one is that they rejected God as king. The people of God rejected God as their king. The second theme is attached to it is that they make themselves their own kings. So in the absence of a king to lead them, they become their own king. They say, I am Lord, I will make the decisions that are best for me. And then the last one is that they become Canaanized, the land of Canaan. The other people that remain in the land with the people of God begin to influence Israel as opposed to Israel influencing Canaan. This is backwards. And I bring this up this morning to say, is this not us? Is this not our culture? Is this not where we reside? Is this not the air we breathe? Is it not the worldview that we are sold from day one? 
where there is no king. God is not your king. Don't listen. The Bible is not true. It's not sufficient. And so be your own king. Make your own decisions. You're the center of your own universe. Is this not the air we breathe? Last week, I shared a letter from Russell Moore, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, with my congregation. If you're not familiar, last Sunday was Sanctity of Life Sunday in response to the 1973 decision of Roe v. Wade, which was celebrated the anniversary of here on the 22nd. And he wrote this letter to his people to describe why he hates Sanctity of Life Sunday. And then we began to think through Martin Luther King Day and why I think he'd exclaim also, I hate Martin Luther King Day. And let me be very clear why. It's not because we don't think you should celebrate maybe the greatest civil rights leader of all time outside of Christ, but rather that these two days should not have to exist. They shouldn't have to exist. And he writes this letter, and let me read it. He says, I hate sanctity of human life Sunday because I'm reminded that we have to say things to one another that human beings should never have to say. Mothers should not kill their children. Fathers should not abandon their babies. No human life is worthless, regardless of skin color, age, disability, or economic status. The very fact that these things must be proclaimed is a reminder of the horrors of this present darkness. I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I'm reminded that as I'm preaching, there are babies warmly nestled in wombs who won't be there tomorrow. I'm reminded that there are children, maybe even blocks from our pulpit, who will be slapped, punched, and burned with cigarettes before nightfall. I'm reminded that there are elderly men and women languishing away in loneliness, their lives pronounced to be a waste to our society. We'll always need Christmas, we'll always need Easter, but I hope, please Lord, someday soon, that Sanctity of Human Life Day is unnecessary. as I sat and reflected on this letter, and honestly, the weightiness of what we can read on Google News. Like, if you go to Google News right now, I tell you, the top 10 headlines are just going to make you disheartened, upset, frustrated, and sad. The world is a mess. Unfortunately, this is not new. Okay? The world's been broken for quite some time, all the way since the beginning, in the fall. This is not new, but I ask us, is this not us? And I bring all of this up here to start to say, we need to tune our ears in, friends. Because the church, me, you, the church of God, the people of God, we are called to be an answer to the brokenness, a light in the darkness, a saltiness to the world that brings about redemption, restoration, peace, and hope. And I just wonder, is that us? If this is our culture, is the church being and doing what it's supposed to do? And I think what our text does for us today in the raising up of this Judge Gideon shows us potentially what we might need to do as we check our own heart issues to expel idols, to allow us to be the people the church is supposed to be for the sake of Arcadia, Phoenix, Flagstaff, Arizona, and the world. So tune our ears in. Let us not be a people who hear the word of God like we hear a name and forget it as soon as we've heard it. But let us be a people moved in conviction by the Holy Spirit to leave these doors responding to the gospel and trusting his transformation. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this cycle as it begins in verse 1. Let me read 
and then we'll keep moving. Here we go. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. I'm gonna, and I'm going to do this sometime. You'll notice we're going to skip to verse 6 here. It's a long text, and so we're going to get the thrust of it. But I do encourage you to go back and read yourselves. Get into your Bibles. Verse 6 says this, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for the help of the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites. So I'm going to throw up a, um, a cycle slide that we have here. This is the cycle I was speaking of that we find Israel trapped in throughout this entire book over and over. We see this thing over and over again. And so we see first sin, right? They rebel. They chase after idols. They chase after other gods. Two, servitude that God puts them and puts them underneath different uh, lands and nations and people that oppress them. Three, supplication. They cry out to the Lord. Four, salvation, God comes in, raises up a judge, delivers them from the people, and then silence or rest. There is quiet, there is peace in the land. So we start off already with this same cycle. So we see it, sin, people do evil on the side of the Lord, servitude, Midian overtakes the people of God, supplication, again, the people cry out, and then we see in this, right, that we should move directly into salvation, that up until this point, and honestly throughout much of the rest of the text, it will go directly from supplication to salvation. They'll cry out, God will raise up the judge, and they will be saved. But we get something different today. Let us read in verse 8. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you up out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So God normally in this cycle, he goes from this crying out moment and deliverance is expected. Okay, God, you're going to come in, you're going to do your thing, right? You're going to raise up the guy. He'll go defeat our enemy. We will be set free and then we'll rejoice and there'll be peace and we'll be all Good, right, Lord? Right, that's what you're going to do. But before God raises up our judge, before Gideon shows up on the scene, before we get salvation, we get a sermon. Before we get salvation, we get God coming in and saying, wait a minute, I think we need to do something different because this cycle isn't working. You're not seeing the picture that you continue to move in sin and then they oppress you. Then you cry out and I save you. You continue to do this. What must I teach you now? And so instead of salvation, we get a sermon. And here's what I fear that we do often. I know I do it individually. Listen, everything I'll say today, I am the guiltiest of everyone in the room. But do we not, are we not so quick to leave a trial? Are we not so quick to, to, to flee from that which we don't like, which might oppress us, that we miss God's purpose while in it? I wonder, do we not even ask the question, in the midst of this. God, what are you trying to teach me? Maybe there's something I'm supposed to learn in here that transforms all of this so that I don't end up back here three months down the road. God, what are you trying to do? Do we not ask the question? So God, I think sometimes leaves us, prolongs this trial, and he does it for the people of God, I think, because he's saying, listen, guys, you're not getting it, and this is going to keep happening, and my mission is more important. Why don't you stop chasing after your idols? Before you can ever attack 
the sin which so is, is so pervasive in your life, in my life, there's some work that must be done in here. You will dispel, you will try and stop sinning, right? We talk through resolutions every January, right? You do a resolution, most of them end mid-February. There's a reason, because we try and change behavior without changing the heart. Never works. So I think God is saying, wait a minute, we're going to prolong this trial just a bit more because I need to speak to you, I need to teach you, and here's what you're missing. You're missing that I'm the Lord God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You're missing the fact that you're supposed to be worshiping me as ultimate. Instead, you worship these other things. This is your problem, Israel. Is this not us? Is this not our problem? Do we not chase after thing after thing after thing, expecting fulfillment? They let us down, and so we miss God. We find ourselves in the same place over and over again. We need to sometimes sit in the trial, sit in the brokenness, to truly experience how God is trying to reform something in here before moving on. Now, I did some research this week that I hopefully no one else in here has ever done, but it's how you make a pickle, okay? Yeah, it was that interesting. And you take a cucumber, and you put it in a brine, and then you leave it there for a long time, and it begins to ferment and soak up all the flavors, all the juices. It turns into a pickle because it sits for time while the outside things begin to influence and affect it. As silly of an illustration as this is, there is an exact amount of time that the pickle should sit in a pickling substance before it becomes tasty for us. You take it out too early, you leave it in too long, that type of thing, it's not a pickle. It's unedible. I truly think this, and I mean this, as silly as illustration may be, there is a time that you need to be sitting in the reality of the trial that you have in your life. Because God wants to do something in it instead of having you just flee and find yourself in it once again, months down the road. So marinate in what God is doing. Allow him to speak truth into your life in the midst of the trials that we all find ourselves in. I think the other point that we have to hit here is that the biggest flaw that maybe Israel did in this entire book is they stopped telling the story of God. This is why people forgot. Because people didn't recount the story of God. So God has to come in and remind them, I'm the God who brought you up out of Egypt. I've done these great works. I created you. I'm your Lord. I'm your Savior. I've done this and this and this and this. And so he recounts. He gives this sermon. Remember me. Remember me. Because the people stopped telling the gospel to one another. The gospel, the good news of Christ, is not to stop with you. Hear me, Christian, like, we are not just the bearers of the gospel story for it to die on you. You are to give it away and give it away and give it away so that the world, the next generation, knows the story and the goodness of our Lord. Okay. I want you to think about this. How many Star Wars fans do we have in the room? Any? Okay. Decent amount. Okay. Um, what if, okay, what if Yoda doesn't invest in Luke? Is there a new hope? No. <laughs> Does the empire win? Yeah. Does the force ever awaken? No. And that would be a sad thing. 
if you do not give it away, okay, if we do not pass on the gospel, hear me, evil prevails. Evil prevails. The gospel, hear me, is the only answer in our world for its pain, its brokenness, and its destruction. Being good, not going to do it. Working really hard is not going to do it. Now these things fall, I think, underneath a gospel-centered life, surely. But the gospel story, the reality of God's redemptive work, not just since Christ, right, but throughout history, everything you study here. Let's say if you're a Christian, this is your heritage. You are studying your story here. This gospel is the only answer for the brokenness of our day, and so we have to give it away. If you don't give it away, do not complain about the brokenness of this world because you and I possess the answer. It is Christ, and if we hold it to ourselves, we're as guilty as the ones committing the crime. Amen? Let's keep going. Here's the call of Gideon. God does raise this man up to deliver them. He says in verse 12, and we're going to skip a couple verses in here too, but verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign. It is you who speak with me. So here we have finally the judge raised up. The people of God are probably just chomping at the bit. We've got our guy. This guy's going to save us. This guy's going to take care of us. And so God raises up this man, and he begins to say, listen, I shouldn't be your guy. Like, why are you calling me to this? And Gideon is going to do this a couple more times, this doubtful Gideon to say, I don't don't know if I'm your guy. I need you to confirm because I'm not sure you're talking to the right person. I identify with him big time. When I read the story of Gideon, I'm like, dude, that's me. God, I'm always, God saying, okay, go and do this. And I'm like, man, okay, are you sure? Are you sure you want, you want this? You know what's going on in here. You know what's going on in my mind. Are you sure I'm the guy for this job? And what I love about this picture is the reality is that Gideon probably isn't the guy for the job. Like he's in and of himself not that great of a guy, but here's what God does. He goes full kind of Tony Robbins right now, right? He says, oh, mighty man of valor. Gideon is not a man of valor at all, but God's speaking a truth into him that he doesn't even realize about himself. The reality, I think, of the people of God today is we don't even know. What does it mean for the fact that Christ died for you and died for me and the Holy Spirit now resides in you? I think we miss that altogether. And gosh, man, I'm, this is a whole nother, this is like a mini-series that I could do on this one. We miss the identity piece of what God has accomplished in giving us his son. So as he looks out to you, and man, I hear the weightiness of the call of God to be on mission, to give away the gospel, and I'll be honest, I'm as afraid as, afraid as many of you. I'm as doubtful as many of you. And praise God, it has nothing to do with my insufficiency, but it has everything to do with his sufficiency in me, the identity that you all walk in if you know Christ. 
And so the confidence that we can walk out of here today with has nothing to do with your doubting, has nothing to do with your strength, your ability, your talent. It has everything to do with Christ in you. And so as we hear the rest of the heavy weight of the call of God throughout the entire book of Judges, we can walk out not fearful, but rather celebratory, because God goes before us and in us to transform the world. Amen? Okay. This is good news for us. We're going to cliff note the rest of this call piece. Um, he says, you know, God, I need you to confirm this to me, because I, I don't know. Like, I need you to do something. And so he gathers some things. He goes and he gets some goat meat. Uh, I'm paraphrasing significantly, but he gets some goat meat and some cakes and some broth and he gets a table and he puts the goat meat and the cakes and he pours the broth over the top and the angel of the Lord comes and sets it on fire and it vanishes and then he knows, oh yeah, that's God talking to me, right? So what you've got here is your typical meat cake confirmation, right? (laughs) We've all had one, right? We're like, oh yeah, no, he burned your meat cake? Totally, totally. That's definitely God. It's definitely God. For whatever reason, and there, there is some good reason. We don't have time for it. But, but God uses this moment, and Gideon's like, this is the voice of the Lord. This is the voice of the Lord. I know. It is confirmed. I am to go. He has a confirmed call from God. And in this moment, as he trusts the Lord, right then and there, Gideon builds an altar to God to worship him. This, I think, although a very quick moment in the entire scheme of Gideon's uh, narrative in the Bible, I think is a very important moment. He hears from God. He is resolute. This is God. I know it's God. And so in this moment, what does he do? He worships the God of the universe that has brought them out of the land of Egypt. He builds an altar to the Lord and says, yep, you're the guy. And then he's going to get called to do one more thing. Back in the text, verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here. With stones laid in due order, then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day. He did it by night. So again, Gideon kind of fearful, but still obedient. Okay, again, I get this, because a lot of times I'm fearful, I'm doubting, but obedience is the key. Do we still go in the midst of our own fear? But God says, listen, I need you to go, I need to tear down this bale. And so he goes and he tears it down before them. I think the only way, hear me, the only way we remove idols from our life is if we start with the worship of the one true idol that deserves it. You and I, listen, we as humans will always say there is something we want to give our affection to. And so say it's money, right? Say money is our thing. We're chasing after money. And you will push away money. You know, I'm not supposed to idolize and worship money, so you rend it away from your heart. All that is left then is a heart that longs for something else to cling to. And it will chase after the nearest thing to fulfill its affections. The only thing that can successfully drive out an idol is the one idol that actually deserves it. So what we do is, as the people of God, we don't just say, no, I'm going to stop worshiping money. It's that we're going to start worshiping Jesus more than anything else. And in the pursuit and the worship of Jesus, the other idols of your life will flee because they cannot stay there when God is your utmost. 
And so worship Jesus. That's why I think he gives them that sermon. He doesn't say, hey, I need you to stop doing that. He says, no, I am the, I'm reminding you, this is who I am. God is trying to move the people of God back to a worship of him so that the idols of the world would flee. And that's exactly what happens with Gideon. He raises up this altar, worships God, and so the call to remove the idol is immediate. I will go and I will do it. And the idol is knocked down. Okay. Um, the people freak out. They don't like this. Okay. They want to kill Gideon because they have torn down the because he has torn down the Baal. But Joash, his father, steps in and says, No, leave him alone. Okay. Don't you think that if Baal is a god, can he not defend himself? This is somewhat ironic because it is Joash's Baal, it's Joash's idol, which is torn down. But he has wisdom, I think, for the world in this moment. So three things on idolatry before we get to our last text and wrap up. The first one is that trials expose idols. Trials, so in the midst of trial, in the midst of loss, you will learn very quickly what are the idols of your life. When 2008 hit, right, and the market crashed and the housing bubble popped, we found pretty quickly who had invested everything in the hope of financial success. This should not negate the pain and the hardship that was that season for many. But it did expose, I think, for plenty, was money indeed an idol. In the midst of trials, they get, uh, idols do get exposed. You want to know if something is an idol. Have it taken away from you. And are you disappointed or are you despondent? How much does it affect you? And only you can be the judge of that. We need to find these things out. The second point, idols will always fail you. Idols will always fail in general. So Joash has a great point of wisdom to say, listen, if he's a god, he can take care of himself. You don't need to defend him. Joash, knowing full well, he's not a god. He can't handle himself. He will fail. Idols will always fail you. And listen, they often look like God, but they're not God. They look like they will offer you what God will offer you. They, they look like they will offer you peace and hope and security and all the things that we long for, and they will look like God, but they are not God. I have a 17-month-old son, Finley, and every brown person he sees, he thinks is me. He's like, Dad? No, we don't all look the same, Finley, you know? Idolater, you know? It looks like me, but it's not me. It cannot offer my son what his father can offer his son, my son. Your idol, as tempting as much as it looks like God, will give you what you think God will give you. It will not give you that. It will fail you. Last idol, or last thing on idolatry. It is often a mixture of God and insert other stuff we think is good. It's not always just, it's not always, God, I, I, love, or I, I love money but hate God. It's oftentimes, well, I love God and I love money. It's, uh, I, do, I love God and I love sex. I love God and I love status. I love God and I love my career. Insert your thing. Idolatry will often be paired with God and it cannot be. It is idolatry in and of itself if it's a tag-along to God himself. The best story I ever heard about idolatry the best illustration that really transformed the way I viewed it was by a pastor named Francis Chan, and I don't know if you're familiar with him. Bald guy, he's got a little goatee. Looks like he's like being stabbed every time he makes a point. I mean, just like 
purses his face, very funny looking dude. But he gave this illustration, this is all the way back in college, and I'd like to share it with you as we wind up. And he says this, he's, he's talking about the moment with, with when he finally realized the deep idolatry of his life. And he said this, he says, I have a beautiful daughter. And she came to me one day, she said, Dad, I really want this dollhouse. Will you buy me this dollhouse? And, and I was like, no, sweetie, you know, we can't afford it. We're not going to buy it. And then she kept asking over time, and she's being a really sweet girl. And so I wanted to give her this dollhouse and bless my daughter with this dollhouse. And so I, I gave it to her, and I set it up in her top room. And, and I left it up there. It's her playroom. I knew she'd love it there. And I tell you what, the favorite part of my day, the favorite part of every day is when I would come home from work, i pull up into the driveway, and before I could even go to open my door, there's a resistance on the other side because there's my daughter waiting for me to get home. And she could not wait for me to arrive home so we could play, we could embrace, she can give me a hug and a kiss and tell me she loves me. And then I built this dollhouse. And one day I came home from work and I went to go open my door, yet there was no resistance, and I walked out just fine. And I went into the house, and I saw my beautiful wife, and I said, where is she? And she said, oh, she's upstairs. I said, okay. So I went upstairs, and I creaked, up the, creaked open the door ever so slightly, and I saw her playing there with her dollhouse. And I called out to her, and I said, sweetheart. And she didn't look. And, and I said again, sweetheart. And she didn't look. I said it one more time. I said, sweetheart. And she didn't look. And so I stepped back. I closed the door. Instead of being upset and frustrated, for the first time in my life, I understood the depths of my own idolatry. That I take good things and I make them more important than my father. Oftentimes, it is a mixture. Joe Ash loved God in the sense that we know that he shared the story with Gideon. He tells that in the narrative, right, that Gideon heard the story of God from his father. So Joash, he, he had some type of love or understanding of God, yet he also had a giant Baal in his front yard. He had made something just a little more important than God. These are the things that we need to be fearful of. So we wrap up in our last text, verse 36 Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so, and when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and all the ground let there be dew. God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So the fleecing of God, a popular text. Do not do this, first of all, okay? Not a good idea, okay? You're not to test God this way. Don't read this. The Bible is often descriptive, not prescriptive. This is that moment, right? Do not fleece God. Don't test God. Don't say, God, listen, if you want me to do this, then you need to insert your crazy thing, okay? But what he says is like, okay, if you want me to finally confirm one more time that I'm supposed to go and deliver Israel, then here's what I want. I'm going to lay a fleece out, and if I come in the morning and the fleece is still wet but the ground is dry, then I'll know you've done it. And he wakes up in the morning, and it is so, and then he thinks to himself, oh, yeah, science, that's what's supposed to happen, and so it isn't confirming anything, Right? So he's like, okay, I, I dropped the ball on that one. God, one more time. Here's what I want to do. Okay, I want the ground to be wet, but the fleece dry. And so he wakes up, and it is so. And here's what I'm saying. He gets a confirmed call once again from God. 
He gets a confirmed call. You will be the guy to go and deliver Israel. And I ask us, church, this morning, have we not received a confirmed call from God to be the light of the world? Are we, is it not confirmed that the church of God is to be the hand of God in the world? It is confirmed. You cannot negotiate your way out of it. We cannot rationalize away our comfortable Christianity. We have to step in, get rid of the idol, and pursue the reconciliation and redemption of the world. Amen? And here's why there's good news. Because we see in the book of Judges over and over and over a people of God who rebel. And yet over and over and over, God raises up someone to deliver them. Today, we live in a reality where I know my own heart. I will reject God over and over and over again in the way that I act and live my life. And yet, he still sent one to raise and deliver us. And just like Gideon, who it made no sense that God would raise up this guy, he raised up his own son, Jesus, where it made no sense that this would be the man to deliver the world. Let me just give you this. Jesus, an unattractive minority infant born to a poor virgin in a land ruled by an oppressive tyrant surrounded by an existing theocracy that wanted nothing more than to destroy him. And that's our Savior. God raised up a deliverer for us so in the midst of our rebellion, every morning you and I wake up with new mercies and get a try again to serve him, to love him for his glory and for our great joy. My desire for you guys is that we would take this, we would allow the realities of the day to expose our idols, our idols and that we'd be obedient not in trying to cast them away ourselves, but that we be obedient to worship the God who has delivered you from the hands of darkness and brought you into his glorious light. That we'd worship him and praise him as Cody and the band come up and sing that we could praise and worship him in this incredible way. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your hope. Thank you for your deliverance. God, we are, um, we are woefully incapable without you. Just God, I pray that you would just allow us to be shaped more and more by your gospel, more and more, God, by the work that you're doing. Will we see our idols, God, and just rush back to you to worship you in your good name. We thank you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen. We're going to move into a time of